This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie Nacherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are filming for you once again. How are you this week? Um, do you want like (laughs) the fake answer or do you want the real answer? The real answer. Give me that fake shit. Um, it's been like a shrug, I think, this, this time of year. It's the holidays. Right. And I don't know. Like, uh, I don't want, I don't want to believe this. Well, first of all, I'll just preface all of this by saying that I just kind of came up on a couple of really bummer anniversaries. (laughs) So it's the one year anniversary of me getting laid off. So I have officially been unemployed for a year. Boo, yay. Boo sucks. <laughs> yay. <laughs> no shit. Um, and haven't found a job, obviously. So that's been wonderful. As I talked Oof. about a few weeks ago, I was like, it's a source of uh, constant anxiety in my life right now. And the interviews that I had gone on a while back have all come back. Oh, uh, no. So what? I'm like, back to the drawing board. Yeah, it's crazy. So, God, I'm so sorry. That fucking blows. Especially that one I thought for sure you were a lock. Ugh. Yeah, this is like the, the saddest part about all this is that it's just this constant like dreams hopefully maybe will come true and then they just are so dashed. I have a friend who is also looking for work. Actually, I have a lot of friends looking for work. So yeah. that is some kind of comfort at this moment is that like a lot of people I know are in my position, which sucks, but also is maddening considering that literally every time I turn on the news, they're like, the job market is wonderful. Everybody's working. Everybody's prosperous. I'm like, who the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Like, (laughs) I don't understand who you're talking about. Um, Where are you getting your statistics? Are you only polling like five rich people who don't ever experience the realities of actual life. Who don't have to work. They just find work fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he and I applied for the same, we applied at the same company, but it was a different position. Right. Um, Because my friend is in news and I'm in entertainment, but it's, it was the same company. And he was, he was applying for a, you know, higher title than I was obviously, because he's, been in news for a very long time. We got the same exact email. Word for word. Jesus. And they, and it was written, quote unquote, by a woman (laughs) named Allison or something like that. But it was the, and it was supposed to have been like 
some person that was specific to each of our divisions, like some kind of hiring manager-ish thing, but it was the same exact email written exactly the same way from the same woman. From the same AI bot. Yes. And we were both like, what what the fuck? Like we 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 applied for two completely different jobs. So it was Jeez. I mean, that's just such a nice feeling, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after all the time and effort and hopes and emotions that go into applying for and interviewing for a job, and then just to get like beep boop blah beep. <laughs> like yeah. that is so fucked. So just all that stuff is is rolling out. And I I mean, it's just, I've been going through waves of this all year. So, like, a batch of applications. I mean, I am trying, by the way. I feel like Charlotte in Sex and the City, when, like, Carrie stands up and is like, she's trying. That's who I am right now. Like, I am applying for, I have a spreadsheet of every job that I've applied for that's very intricate and has, like, status updates and dates and times and everything. Everything that I've applied for. I go to coffee so much, you have no idea. Like, I constantly am taking people to coffee, networking, all that stuff. And so it feels like, you know, all year I've been writing this thing where it's like, applications, applications, interviews, oh, maybe something works out, and then nothing works out. And then a period of depression. Then you go back up and, you know, put your boots back on and try it again. And then the same thing happens. So it's this like cycle of like, oh my God, I just am like so defeated right now by it. And I, I, you know, I I hesitate to talk about this on the podcast because, you know, it's very personal, right? Yeah. And it is weird to, to talk about unemployment. Like people are uncomfortable by it. Yeah, but it's also your life. So what are you supposed to do? I know. I mean, and and it sucks because it's just sort of like, I just, I didn't, I gotta be honest. I did not think I'd be unemployed this long. I really yeah, didn't. I didn't either. Yeah. I didn't either. But just the odds. Like I was like, yeah. the odds are that I could probably find a job within a year. No. So. God, that makes me so sad for the world because I think it's, not you, and you know that other people are looking, you know that this is happening to friends and people at large and that the news is absolutely lying (laughs) about jobs being (laughs) everywhere. But it just makes me so sad to think that, like, there are so many talented and great and cool people who are struggling right now through really no fault of their own. Yeah. It's not because you're not trying enough. It's not because you don't know enough. It's not because you're not enough. Like, it's just... The weirdest job market of all fucking time. So yeah, that's where I'm at. And it's like, cool, now the holidays are coming. So I'm I'm really, really stoked about that. I mean, to be honest, I was technically unemployed last Christmas too because the company I worked for laid me off two weeks before Christmas. I think we've talked about that before. But the other thing is that a, a few weeks ago, I, I also remembered that it was like five years since my whole medical debacle, my uh, emergency surgery thing that happened, which you, if you don't know, you can listen to plenty of episodes in the past. We've talked about it before. But in the same way, I think, of like this random thing happening to me, 
<laughs> with like no prior warning. Yeah. I'm like, what is up with the holidays? Like, I'm just sort of like, the holidays are cursed. And because between, like I said, the thing that happened to me medically, like happened around Thanksgiving. I got laid off around Christmas. Right now, there's a lot, a lot of my friends are going through some pretty scary shit. Like I have a friend of mine who's really sick right now. A friend of mine's Ugh. dog just died. Like, I mean, just people are kind of going through some bad times besides all the unemployment stuff I just spoke about. But then I thought back many years prior and thought, oh, bad shit has always happened around Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like, I've had several people in my life flat out die around this yep. time of the year. You know, it's just not a good time and i hate that it's not because i used to love it when i was younger yeah i never liked this time of year like i yeah. i basically from november 1st until january 2nd i'm in a low grade hibernation cuz i fucking hate the holidays <laughs> like yeah. i always have it's very stressful i usually when i was younger i never had money i felt like i couldn't buy anybody anything I didn't have time to make anybody anything because I had three or four jobs. Like, it was just always a source of stress and anxiety for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a family that I'm close to, so I don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. And I hate it. I just hate, hate, hate this time of year because it's so family heavy and it's so money heavy. And like you said, it is also the time of year when bad shit just happens. To most yeah. people, like I just, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, so this time of year is like, and especially the family heaviness of it, because I don't care how much you have, for me, like it, it doesn't matter. Like I have a, a wide reaching chosen family and friends and like great, like people in my life. Like I'm not worried about that at all. It takes a dive around the holidays because they have their own families. Like they yeah. have their own shit. And they have their own commitments. So no matter how close I am to anybody, they always disappear this time of year <laughs> because yeah. they have their own stuff going on. So yeah, it's like the it's a depressing, lonely, horrible time where if something bad can happen, it usually does. People yeah. are sick, people are dying, pets are ill, it's stress, it's anxiety. And I'm sorry if you like love the holidays and this is bumming you the fuck out, but I swear to God, this is like 90% of the people I know feel this way about the holidays as adults. I know. And like, like I said, I think in my younger years, well, it was funny because in when I was younger, I obviously loved getting presents. So I was like, any, any holiday that gives me presents, I'm down for it. <laughs> yep. Then at some point as a teenager and in my 20s, I thought, the holidays were a capitalist um, ploy to um, ruin all of our lives. And so I was very anti-holidays. And then, I don't know, like recently I kind of came back around on the holidays. And I think when my nephews were born, I started kind of liking them again. Because I was like, oh, there's kids around and they're so cute. And, you know, like, yeah. let's dress them up like elves and take pictures. But it's just changed. Like, the past couple years have been really, really hard for me. And I'm like, I'm not into it anymore. And I hate that. But it's also, like, the thing about what you just said about this, this sort of, like, family-heavy 
time is that everyone is going through major shit. Even if you have a great family, there is going to be drama. But there's also this performance aspect to it to where you go on social media and everybody's wearing fucking matching pajamas and being goofy. And you're just like, what the fuck? I don't want to see this. If I'm going through something hard, I don't want to see people's mirth and merriment. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also the time of year when you're most likely to find out that people grew up rich because you look at their houses and you're like, oh, that's your family home. Yeah. Never knew you were fucking loaded. <laughs> like you're all like curved around a, a long banister on a grand staircase, and you're like, oh, all right, <laughs> that's your house. Cool. But yeah, yeah right? it's definitely. And I think it's it's you're right. Like as people get older, like we just definitely, you know, people in our lives are getting older and more shit is happening in terms of illness and you kind of want to take advantage of and spend this time with people because you're like, wow, I don't know how many more Christmases I'll get, or I don't know how much time I'll get, but it doesn't make it easy to be in that process of like possibly being in your last Christmas with someone or possibly facing hanging out with people that you love after a year of extreme hardship. So yeah, it is tinged. I think holidays as adults are definitely tinged, possibly cursed, (laughs) Um, I kind of, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do in my life is get to a point where I can eventually just disappear from November until January, like go to a fucking Jamaica or like just go to some like far away place where like I'm not expected, like you're not going to hear from me. You're not going to get any updates. I'm going to read books and hang out with my cat for Mm -hmm. two months and then just resurface in January. That is the yeah. goal of my life right now is like to hopefully achieve that by 50 <laughs> where I can leave in November. I don't have to mark any shitty anniversaries. Like, yeah, that's the yeah. goal. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good goal to have. I, yeah, I'm trying, I've been trying to figure out like what will bright my spirits in any kind of way. I mean, I think, you know, when I go and see my family, which you know, usually happens, obviously, around Christmas. It, 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 I feel okay because I'm around people, right? Because normally I'm by myself all the time. Um, so it feels better. It also, weather-wise, is okay because it's a lot more temperate in Florida than it is, you know, pretty much anywhere north of there. Um, so it does help me a little bit to be around my family during the holidays. But, you know, the issue, I think, is always going to come back to where I'm at and my family is going to be very in tune to where I'm at. And it sucks because it's like, you want to feel happy, but you know, somebody's going through something. Right. You know, or they're going to ask you about what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, in my, trust me, my parents have been completely freaked out about the fact that I've been unemployed this entire year. Um, And I just know that it's going to be another year where they're just like worried about me and it sucks. I don't want them to feel that. Um, so I'm just going to try to stay positive in some kind of way and just, you know, try to lean into like the good things in my life. I, I know I have to do that. Like sometimes I literally have to sit back in a chair and go, okay, what are things that make me happy? Like remind myself that I've got like amazing things like this podcast and my friends and my dog and my family and, you know, and I'm not dead quite honestly, I'm not dead. Right. But it's just, yeah, it's just this time of the year that gets really performative, really um, reflective, the weather, 
I just think it's cursed, man. And I don't want, like I said, I don't want to think that. But again, too many bad things have happened around this time of year. I was like, can y'all spread this shit out a little bit? Like maybe have a, like one bad thing happen in the spring. Uh, Give me a June (laughs) emergency hospital appointment. (laughs) Give me June. Also, I, I love, I love approaching it with gratitude this time of year, I think that that's very healthy and I definitely want you to do that. But I'm going to offer a counterpoint is mm. that maybe you also give yourself some built-in time to just be stank and a little yeah. hateful and just get that out of your system too. Like one day a week, two days a week or whatever you think you need to just be like, I ain't doing it today. I'm not going to be happy about any of this shit. <laughs> I'm going to just face the fact that it sucks and move on. Well, I'm so happy that you actually said that because (laughs) that's another component to this whole thing that I think I'm feeling right now is this, I mean, of course I'm leaning into gratitude because I'm just literally trying to like feel good, right? You want to, you want to stay positive and you want to have healthy habits in order to help you get over hard times, right? But there have been moments of absolute stank (laughs) this past couple weeks, especially, where I've been like, I really hate that I'm feeling this way, but also I can't help it. It is like a bullet yeah. fucking train. Like, I go on LinkedIn, obviously, a lot because I'm unemployed. And I swear to God, like, there was a day where <laughs> I went through the feed and it was like 10 people that I knew were like announcing good things like jobs or like promotions or like fucking this and that. And I was like, I could not be more pissed off. (laughs) Like, I am so bitter, bitterly jealous and pissed off that I have to delete the fucking app from my fucking phone. Like, (laughs) I was like, it is gone. Like, LinkedIn is off my phone. I just was sitting there going, I I was like, I feel terrible. But I also feel terrible that I'm feeling terrible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I feel, I like am embarrassed that I'm this bitter and jealous. Yeah, that's why you got to give yourself a stank day. Yeah. And I do that when it's not even the fucking holidays. I ramp it up during the holidays. (laughs) I'll give myself a stank week, a stank month. But I regularly have just absolute stank days where I'm like, I'm going to (laughs) cry. Like, I just feel like crying. And that's sometimes a stank day just... It, it surprises you because you don't know what you're going to feel when. But I'm like, all right, today's the day because I'm already in tears before 10 a.m. It's my stank day. <laughs> so I'll watch things that make me cry or make me sad. I'll journal about shit that makes me angry. I'll call yeah. people and maybe I try not to usually bring other people into my stank. But like, you know, I just kind of like ha- I have a wallow. Like, I think you need to have a wallow sometimes. Yeah. And not to the point where, you know, for me, where I'll do it for days on end and it becomes depression. Like, you have to be able to notice, oh, this isn't healthy for me. This is actually turning into some, like, an actual bigger psychological issue. But I love a fucking stank day. Just stay in your pajamas, eat whatever you want, eat whatever you fucking want. There's no rules. I don't care if you're having a Diet Coke at 10 p.m. It does not matter. Yeah. Like, don't drink any water. <laughs> like, this is this is how I come up with things like Dirtbag June. Because, yes. like, <laughs> I just have to have days where I'm not a human being in the world who's expected to do anything. I know. And, and like, that dude, makes the gratitude hit harder. 
You're so right. And like, because the impulse, at least for me, is to, you know, I don't want to, I'm supportive of my friends. I'm supportive of people. I, I'm, I, I want people to thrive if you're of a good course. person. Like, I don't want to be this like jealous ass bitch that's sitting around being all negative and being like, I can't no. believe this person. But goddamn, it feels good to do that once in a while. Like the stank day that I had the other day was literally like me either leaving <laughs> Marco Polo's or uh, voice memos. Cause when <laughs> you know me, when, because this we do this sometimes when the the message is extra important it yep. can't be contained in a text you got to do the voice memo <laughs> I love it cuz it's always like a bat signal that like some shit's going down good yes. or bad <laughs> when you get that little thing you're like or that line <laughs> that's like something that you can play audibly you're like oh fuck the shit's wet down what happened <laughs> But I, I, I like, and I, I literally, I literally apologize to anybody that got one of these messages because <laughs> I'm sick of myself. Okay. So don't re- recognize that I understand that I'm a broken record this year and I complain about the same shit, but I was like going off. Like I was like, and it was like, not great. You know, and I was like doing the thing that I hate to think about doing because it's so not productive and it's very jealous. And I don't think of myself as that kind of person You're not. at all, but sometimes the emotions just took, take over, you know what Absolutely. I mean? And you're not that kind of person, but you have to have the release so you can get back to being yourself. Yeah. You gotta have, you gotta have a stank day and there's yeah. no better you time ju- than the holidays. You're so right. I mean, I'm so, I'm so happy that you have <laughs> called it something. <laughs> Because that way, it's like a moment in time that I can say, okay, I'm having a stank day today. No one is safe. Yep. I am going to go off on every single fucking person that bothers me. I'm going to fire off a couple of, of shitty emails to to people who piss me off. I'm going to complain about something, and then I can just move on. Exactly. You know? And truly, it's it's for me, it's about the not feeling bad about feeling bad. Like, don't add the extra pressure yeah. on yourself that you have a different human emotion that's not just pure happiness. Yeah, because there is something as like toxic positivity. Yeah. And uh you know, you don't want that either. No. In my position, <laughs> you don't want to be toxically positive or toxically negative. So. Yeah, and not especially not to yourself, not to yourself. Like you deserve some rest and kindness and love, and if that's how you give it to yourself in a moment, great. It's not who you are. It's not going to be forever. But give yourself that break to just kind of say, like, I don't have to be anything to anyone today because I'm just feeling bad and that's fine. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening to me about all of this because, like I said, I know the holidays are hard for you as well, but um, we're going to get through them. There, Hopefully one day something good will happen during the holidays that is going to cancel out all this negative shit that's happened. I mean, but. I will settle for just finding $20 on the street. <laughs> but also maybe we'll have world peace or maybe we'll stop killing children. And I, that's yeah. so dark, but like maybe, maybe we'll have a month of December where no children are shot and killed in America or at large. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it'll take, but I'm holding out hope that some sometime in the future 
this won't be such a hard time for us. It's a hard time of the year for, for us and for other people. I know there are people listening who are having just as hard a time. And I think in the meantime, it's okay for us to kind of dip. <laughs> like, it's okay to dip. Yeah. And just say, yeah. you know what? I can't do this. This time of year is particularly hard. It's not like being depressed or sad or cranky in March. It's a totally different thing. There's a lot of pressure coming from all aspects of life right now to be happy and joyful and grateful. And sometimes you just ain't feeling it. Yeah. Give yourself a stank. Give yourself yourself the stank. That is words to live by. (laughs) Also, not for nothing, but I have told myself that the only way for the world to heal really, truly like the great equalizer aliens. Absolutely. Nothing will band us together more than just having a whole other fucking life form. Be like, what's up motherfuckers. Dude, I'm telling you, I think about this often. I'm like, what's the one thing that would literally just even the playing field between every single person on the planet aliens. Dude, you are aliens. not wrong. Look, Independence Day is a great movie. It's a blueprint. When aliens show up, everyone starts acting right <laughs> and realizing, oh, wait, we're all on this goddamn planet together. Maybe we should stop this arbitrary bullshit. Yeah. I'm, listen, the day the aliens show up is the day that I'm like, I don't care about how I'm going to pay back my student loans <laughs> or anything. Like, it's just like all of those, like, all of those stress points that we just talked about, go out the window. Who gives a fuck if I'm unemployed if there are aliens coming down? I'm just saying. I think aliens have already been here. I think they've gone through one season of holiday depression and fucking bounced. (laughs) I think they've been here for fucking years. And they've been like, I can't handle, for some reason, November, December, I just want to go home. Like, I don't want to deal with Earth anymore. And they just leave. Oh, yeah. That, like, Mac and Me family alien folks that are, they just threw up the fucking deuces and were like, we're going back on the ship. This place fucking sucks. (laughs) Fucking batteries not included. The robot goddamn (laughs) aliens, all of them are just like, goodbye. Well, we do, in the meantime, have one thing making me happy, which is this week's movies. I am in love with now, this Now, you came up with this, so I want you to tell people what it is and what it means. Wait, did I? Yes, you I did. you did. Nope. No. <laughs> that can't be right. Nope. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, then I, I guess I love my own theme. Weird. I, thought, I totally thought this was you. So the theme for this week is titled, Grandpa's Muttering Again. <laughs> And we are focusing in on films that were made by the director Robert Altman and starring his, I don't know, is maybe one of his favorite actors to work with, Elliot Gould. I'd, I'd say a Muse. The Muse, Elliot Gould. Yes. He's been in several Altman movies and they've all been classics. So. And they work so fucking well together. And it is always kind of a. Sundays at Grandpa kind of movie that they're they're always doing together. Mm, absolutely. And Elliot was on point in this era, wouldn't you say? Listen. <laughs> 
70s Elliot Gould is always the prototype, top of the list, would destroy 100%. I absolutely knew it. I knew it. Always. Although in your movie, George Seagal is not bad, but he's more of a style icon to me, with like accords and, and a sweater. And like, I, he's a style icon. But oh, 70s Elliot Gould is the reason I've made so many bad dating decisions in my life. <laughs> there was an entire generation of men who have tried so hard to ape his entire being. Like, and they don't even know it. That's the thing. I'm like, could you please know it and, and then <laughs> act the part? Yeah, act the part. Uh, listen, I mean, not for nothing. Elliot Gould is a, is a lifelong king. Beyond this era, my other favorite Elliot Gould is those fucking Ocean's Eleven movies. Absolutely. When he's wearing those giant glasses and the, like the weird The tracksuits yes. <laughs> and the robes. Could get it in a different way. Elliot Gould is... is is forever. Is absolutely forever. Also, the last time I saw my movie in a the- was in a theater. We saw it together at the New Bev, and Elliot Gould was there. Wow. Do you remember that? Yes. Holy shit. That was incredible. Yeah, that is the reason to live in LA, to be honest, is to be like, oh, Elliot Gould is here in a 150-seat <laughs> movie theater. <laughs> And again, still, I don't care about most celebrities, immediately weak in the knees. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Immediately weak in the knees. It was like Channing Tatum popping and locking down the aisles (laughs) of the new bed when that happened. You wouldn't get that in Poughkeepsie, I'll tell you that much. You won't see that. You damn sure don't. Um, All you get is some change in leaves. You don't get, imagine like Channing Tatum on a parade float doing pony. (laughs) <laughs> up and down your personal block, like where you live. That's what it's like seeing Elliot Gould at a movie theater in L.A. Oh, God. Well, and like part of the, the, the joke about the name of the theme, Grandpa's Muttering Again, is because he's essentially muttering through both of these films. Exactly. I mean, especially yours, girl. <laughs> Most of his dialogue in my f- film is with himself. <laughs> right. And I, and I think that part of that is... The characters that he plays, which are kind of these, like, you know, unassuming types of guys, right? And that's why we love him, because he's not this, like, you know, dominating alpha male bro type. He's he's a different type of dude. But that also, the style of Robert Altman films, and if you've not seen a Robert Altman film or you don't really know much about his, you know, his filmmaking style, he does this thing where he basically, you know, equals out all of the audio essentially, in, in in his films that so that there's people talking constantly throughout Robert Altman films and they're kind of all at the same volume so you can hear, like, background people talking. And mm-hmm. it's kind of this, like, interesting technique because it kind of makes the characters feel like they're all in the same room together. It feels kind of real in a, in a lot of ways. Like, you're, when you walk into a bar and you hear, like, a bunch of people having different conversations and, um, yep. you know, that's happening in this movie. And... There are there will be like principal actors talking and having an important conversation while you are hearing other people just talking bullshit. Exactly. There, you know? There's a scene in your movie at a bar where that happens. And it's just so stunning and hilarious because it was I, I do notice this about myself when I'm watching Robert Altman movies, which we've covered on the pod before, you know, three women, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. But I'm I was in this in this particular moment, I was looking at 
at your movie and was looking at this scene and I was like, wait, I kind of don't care what the main characters are saying. I'm focusing on what this one woman is saying who we're never going to see again. And I know they're talking about something or like we're miss I'm missing a moment here, but it also feels like I'm getting enough of it to kind of feel okay. It felt like being in a bar. Yeah. It creates this like weird kind of equity between all of the characters in the films, meaning like the the famous people and the side characters are getting kind of equal time. Um yes. which I love. And to 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 your point about McCabe and Mrs. Miller too, I mean that's another movie where like the guy is muttering to himself pretty much the entire time. So I would say that the muttering guy is a staple of a Robert Altman film, but I think Elliot Gould probably does it the best. The best absolutely he is so funny and so good at it and he's his muttering is the kind of muttering where you understand if you can pay attention to what he's saying you come away with an instant deep understanding of who the character is because his muttering actually makes sense in that landscape of oh now i get who this guy is yeah and i will say for the record um because i've seen your film i think this was my third time seeing The Long Goodbye. I put on subtitles this time, and it opened up a brand new world to me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having a, ba- a babelfish, like a babelfish in your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, like here's the legend to all- like- this foreign language that I can't understand. <laughs> Wait, I understand Spanish now. (laughs) I totally understand what they're saying. (laughs) Well, you're going first this week, and I'm so excited. Yes, and my film was released in 1973. It was written by Lee Brackett, based on the book The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler, and directed by Robert Altman. My movie is The Long Goodbye. Listen, Harry, in case you lose me in traffic, this is the address where I'm going. You look great. Harry, I would straighten your tie Yeah. Harry, I'm proud to have you following. So I I love this movie. And it's I will say it's not an easy movie to get into. Like if you haven't watched Robert Altman movies before, I wouldn't say to start with this one. But it's also not difficult to understand. It's kind of a it's a noir drama comedy about a private eye. And I do think that Raymond that that Robert Altman fucks with the genre enough that it's an easier movie to understand than your typical noir would be. But it's not, shouldn't be, it's it, because it's fucking with the genre. I don't think you, should, if you've never watched noir before, this shouldn't be your first, your first one. Um, a one sentence synopsis, a private investigator gets thrown into a case when a friend accused of murdering his wife is found dead by suicide. Mm. So right off the bat, what is fascinating to me about this movie is that it is based on a Raymond Chandler novel. His detective, Philip Marlowe, has been represented on film by many different people, including Humphrey Bogart, James Caan, Rest in Peace King, James Garner, Rest in Peace King? I th- no. Yes? Me? Okay. Question? <laughs> Question? <laughs> Rest in Don't want to kill someone before their time. Haven't heard from him for a long time. Well, we uh, know, we know John, John Amos is alive. Thank um, God. I know. James uh, Garner. He's... No, he died. 2014. Rest in peace, King. Rest in peace, King. Robert Mitchum, old butthole eyes. Rest in peace, King. For me. No. I know you have different feelings. <laughs> 
Robert Montgomery, Dick Cowell. Uh, so Elliot Gould is the youngest person at this time to have portrayed Philip Marlowe. And Lee Brackett, who was a science fiction writer and a screenwriter, she was known as the queen of the space opera, which I didn't know. Whoa, I didn't know uh, that either. Until I was researching this for this film. And she made a lot of changes to the plot. So things that were not in the book, you know, there are scenes that were not in the book that are in the movie. There are things that she intentionally kind of... Um, moved around from the book and kind of changed the format. And I think it makes it a more interesting movie uh, than, it, than it would if you just went straight through from, you know, book plot to, to film. Yeah. So I kind of appreciate that she was able to mess with it, with it as well. And I think that it's, there's just some like really, I don't, there's something really interesting about the way that Elliot Gould plays Marlowe. And it's not, the muttering is definitely key, but I feel like he, you kind of don't know if he's good at his job when you first meet him because he's so, like, <laughs> aloof. He's so aloof. You're like, I, I don't know if you even know what your job is. I don't know if you're good at it. Um, I read Roger Ebert's review of this movie from 1973, and he says, and I quote, uh, he wants to show a private eye from the noir era blundering through a plot he is perhaps too naive to understand, unquote. Mm. And the, you get that feeling throughout that, like, there's something very naive about this Gould version of Marlowe, but he also is such a sarcastic shithead that you kind of wonder if he even cares. Like, he's aware of his own naivete, he's aware of his own shortcomings, but then he fucks with people to the point where he actually gets information out of them, so it kind of makes him good at his job. Yeah. It's a really strange interplay happening with this character. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of noir, a big fan of noir. And most of those old classic noir guys are pretty sure-footed. Like, they, they yeah. pretty much know. They're like, they're more like the Elliot Gould character in my movie, where they're kind of like, kings of the underground. They kind of know everybody and know everything. Right. But they're very confident and they've got kind of a swagger to them. That's the difference, I think, you're right, about the about this kind of Philip Marlowe type is that he's aloof. Um, he kind of believes in people when he shouldn't in a weird yeah. way. Like, he doesn't have that instinct to be like, oh, this, you know, he has a general instinct that maybe a crime that is put on somebody may not have happened or something. He's got kind of that general instinct, but he's often wrong. Yeah. Um, and he kind of, like, gets himself into scenarios um, because he's just kind of, like, not paying attention or not wise enough yeah. or something. He's weirdly unquestioning about things that he should absolutely be curious about. Right. And you think, as a private detective, he's probably seen a few things. But for some reason, it's not registering. <laughs> and he's so, he's so out of place anyway, because he's, like, he's, he's out of place in the way he looks. Like, he wears a suit in this kind of, this early 70s time frame where we're at the tail end of the hippie movement and the kind of you know, the kind of cultural revolution that was happening. And he's wearing a suit and driving this very, very old car. And he kind of, this is exemplified in different ways. One of which is that he lives in this apartment building next to what I can only describe is a harem of naked women who do yoga. 
all the time. <laughs> and he is so uninterested in them. Like everyone that comes to his apartment is like, what the fuck is going on over there? They're out on the porch naked doing yoga. And he's just like, don't worry about it. They're vicious. Like, So he's had some kind of interaction with them in the past that we haven't seen. But all we see is him being completely uninterested in this weirdly fascinating group of neighbors. I really thought about this this time. Probably too much, I would argue. There's actually two things about this that I want to bring up with you. Number one is that I had to look up the actual apartment that that was. Because yeah. I was like, "What? this is an amazing apartment. Like, they're yeah, like, where is this? Where is this, <laughs> right? And it's in L.A., and as of 2014, actually, you could actually rent it. There was a, a Craigslist ad. It's like a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, and it was going for 2800 bucks in 2014. Um, Whoa. And so, you know, that's almost 10 years ago. I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's still there or if it is. It probably costs like $5,000 a month. But Do they advertise it as the apartment from the long goodbye? Yeah, there was. When I, when I looked it up, there was a lot of like... People saying, this is Elliot Gould's apartment in the long goodbye, which I thought was fascinating. Can you imagine renting that apartment, number one? I might I might still be in L.A. if I could rent that apartment. I Hell, I know. But the second thing about it, and this is like to your exact point about like how come he's unaffected, but everybody else is entranced. And I was like, maybe that's by design. Maybe these women are like sirens. Like we talked about the siren thing from, right. you know, a couple episodes ago. That he's in this, like, weird business of having to, like, meet with unshady characters. And maybe it's good that these women are there just being weird and very (laughs) L.A. Because then it distracts whoever's coming to shake him down. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, when he had, there was, like, a scene in the movie that you're probably going to get to later about these people that visit him. That probably could have gone much worse if those women hadn't been topless. and Exactly. Shaking their tits on the balcony. (laughs) Absolutely. And they're not doing it to be provocative, which is also interesting because, you know, I'm always thinking of like this, like the feminist viewpoint. And they're not they're not put in this film to be provocative and to be this kind of, you know, sexual enticement. But they are to characters who are not as reserved as Marlo. So their purpose, like you said, could be twofold. Yeah. And that it exemplifies so much about him and his personality, but it also is completely distracting to people who are trying to fuck him over yeah. or even like come to his apartment. Like yeah. he has timed he has time to get the jump on everybody coming to the front door if they're just staring across the hall. Yeah. And like and to me, you know, having lived in LA now, having that experience, I'm like, everybody in LA has a weird neighbor. <laughs> like maybe if it's not these women, it's like somebody else doing some other thing on their porch, you know? So it's probably also a symptom of that, too, of just being like, it's L.A. There are weirdos kind of doing their weird things all the time in plain sight. Absolutely. you live next to them and you can't do a goddamn thing about it. And the the thing, that's absolutely true. It's just part of living in in most major cities, but particularly New York and L.A., particularly New York and L.A. You're like, all right, that's my neighbor. That's what they do. They just go out in the hallway and scream like a wolf at (laughs) 1130 every night, and they go back into their apartment, and there's nothing I can do about it. (laughs) So, So true. But he also, so it's kind of this, you know, you see this, 
this character who's kind of you're interested in right away because of his actions and the things that he 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 does. Least of all of which is this incredibly long opening scene that involves his cat. And when you first watch the movie, you're like, why are we watching this man talk to himself and deal with this cat so much? But I think it's that exact thing is that you have to see flat out what he actually gives a shit about and what he trusts and what he talks, like what he talks about, what's on his mind, um, how kind of weirdly focused he is, which I think you have to be as a private eye. He's very laser focused on certain certain tasks. And so at first you're like, oh, this is just a funny scene with this guy and his cat. But then when I really think about it, I'm like, no, this is actually kind of telling us a lot about Marlowe and yeah. this version of Marlowe. And I think it was a really smart way to open the movie, even though it is kind of confusing because you're just dropped right into the action. Um, yeah. But it's adorable. Like his cat kind of wakes him up by hopping on his chest and it's like three o'clock in the morning. And he's mumbling to himself, and you can kind of see the way he lives, which is a mess. Like, he's sleeping. When he wakes up on the bed, he's sleeping next to a plate with, like, old food on it. He's chain-smoking the entire movie. Yep. <laughs> so anytime he's his eyes are open, he has a cigarette. So he wakes up, lights a cigarette. He uses um, Strike Anywhere matches. Which is, you know, again, just like a, a beautiful character detail for for Marlowe. And it gives it kind of a noir edge as well. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, striking a match in an alley in the dark, and then all of a sudden you see the private eye's face kind of mm-hmm. kind of feeling. And he's obsessed with the fact like he's pissed off, but also obsessed with the fact that he has no cat food and this cat is hungry. And this is a cat actor that to me belongs in the Barrymore Houston rat <laughs> actor level. 100% fact. Like, I was this like... This cat is a ham. <laughs> where the hell did you find this comedic acting cat? Um, I wanted to ask you, as an orange cat owner, what is what is the believability of... Because this is part... I wasn't sure if this was Hollywood magic or if this was actually what orange cats do. The hi, The whole idea that he had to relabel the shitty cat food. Yeah. And then his and then his cat would know that it wasn't the real cat food that he'd been eating this entire time. What is the the truth behind that? Would cats do that? That's real life. Okay. <laughs> that is real life. That has happened to me. Wow. It is real fucking life. I mean, this cat was also this cat was a phenomenal actor for sure, but that is real life. And again, just the funniest fucking moment of him trying to trick his cat he knows his cat so well that he knows he will only eat curry brand cat food. Like, he yes. will not eat any other brand. So there, he goes to the store. They're out of the cat food. He's mumbling his way through this purchasing pro- process. He gets home, closes the door behind him so the cat won't see, Switch it, takes an old can out of the garbage, puts the cat food in it, and then the cat is like, nah, I ain't having that. Carrot, Beans Baxter Henderson, <laughs> already gets... The most spoiled level of cat food I can afford. And I swear to you, there is one flavor that he will not eat. And it comes in a package. Like, I have his food delivered to the house. And so, like, it comes in the package. And there was one month where I forgot to say, don't send us the beef one because he won't eat it. And they sent, like, five packages. And I'm like, well, we're, we're eating it. I had to pay for this shit. When I tell you this motherfucker, let that food sit in his bowl all goddamn day. 
He was he would rather go on a hunger strike than eat this one particular flavor of a food that he loves. Yeah. Very on brand for an orange cat. I, I thought so. There was this other scene or this other part right before it where before he goes to the store to get him the cat food, um, he puts like cottage cheese with like a raw egg and mixes it around in like a pie <laughs> tin. And the cat just he puts it on the counter. The cat just like pushes it off the counter. Like, Wads it to the ground. That. And I was like, that seems like a thing that Carrot would do, but I would double check. Swats it to the ground. That is orange cat behavior <laughs> to a T. It's why we love them. Yeah. They're very vocal. You don't have to guess how they're feeling. But yeah, that is Carrot to a goddamn T. Yeah, listen, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to do our own like, like maybe it'll also be a special episode where we give out awards to like the best pet actors <laughs> yes! and like because we got to talk about this cat from Long Goodbye, Church from Pet Cemetery, the rats from Graveyard Shift, <laughs> the, dog the dog from the Boogans, and Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> and Silence of the Lambs. We're gonna have to do like pet acting awards. Oh god, we have to do that on a bonus up. We yeah. have to. Any animal that we've covered in in this in this uh, the three years that we've been doing this, we have to definitely yeah start giving out awards. But again, like this scene, it, it's long and it's weird, and I love it. And you get to know, but you get to know so so before we even get to a crime, we already know who Marlo is. And again, we're not sure if he's good at his job, and we really never see the cat again. Like he he talks about the cat, but we never see the cat again. Yeah. But this scene is crucial to setting up who this dude is. Uh, so I fucking love that scene. And again, by the time we get to the crimes, I'm just like, this guy is hilarious. He's hilarious and weird and mumbly. And I want to see what he does next. And so what happens is we, we're kind of, this, this scene is interspliced with this guy who's leaving a place called the Malibu Colony and he's leaving in a sports car and he's got scratches on his face. And he shows up at Marlowe's house and it's his friend, Terry, Terry Lennox. And he kind of just says, oh, yeah, I'm fighting with my wife again. And by the way, I need a ride to Tijuana. And Marlo, who sh- who is a private detective and should absolutely be saying why, just <laughs> says, OK. So this guy leaves his car at his house and he just dr- Marlo just drives him to Tijuana, literally drops him at the border, which I don't think you could even do anymore. Yeah. And just turns the car around and comes back. And by the time he comes back, there's two detectives at his door and they're like, uh, yo, the, do you know this guy, Terry Lennox? Because, uh, P.S., his wife is dead. Like, he finds out after they arrest him and take him into uh, the station because he's so resistant. Like, he's such a dick in this scene. He's so resistant. He's so funny. And the interrogation scene is weird and funny. And he's just not saying anything, but he'll, like, he took all the the black stuff on his fingers from when they fingerprinted him. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, I'm going to pretend to be Al Jolson and sing Swanee. Like, he's just in his own fucking world. Right. But not saying anything. So when they tell him that Sylvia, Terry's wife, is dead, Marlo instantly is like, well, Terry didn't do it. Like, there's got to be something else going on here. So that kind of, he's not been hired for this case, but it kind of makes him interested enough to want to interrogate this case. He sits in jail for three days. And when he's let out, he finds out that the case is closed because Terry has been found in Mexico and he's committed suicide. Mm. And he's like, none of this sits well with me. Uh, I knew Terry very well. We've been friends for a long time. None of this is cool. 
So he decides to kind of take it upon himself to investigate the crime. But when he gets out, there's already this guy named Martin waiting for him. Uh, Mar- Marty Augustine, who's this, like, thug. <laughs> but he's a very strange thug. <laughs> he's a very rich, high-powered L.A. version of a thug. Mm. And he gets out and he's like, oh, by the way, your friend Terry had like $350,000 of my money when he disappeared. So now I'm telling you and kind of putting you on the job to find it. Hmm. And Marlo's like, well, I don't know what the fuck is happening to your money, but he gets a call from another woman. For at that, at that moment, he gets a call and it's this woman named Mrs. Wade. And she's like, oh, my husband is a writer and he's been missing for a week. And he says yes to the case. At first, you're not sure why, in the middle of all this happening, friend who possibly died by suicide after murdering his wife owes $350,000. Now the criminal underworld that he was part of is at your doorstep. Why is he taking this case from this woman? But then you find out, as he drives up to her house, that she lives in the Malibu colony. So he's kind of simultaneously looking at Terry's case and Mrs. Wade's case. And the Wades are interesting because Mrs. Wade is basically like, she's played by Nina Van Pallant. And she's like, you know, her name's Eileen. She's like, my husband's been missing for a week. He goes away sometimes for a few days, but never this long. Marlo actually finds him. And Roger Wade is played by the actor Sterling Hayden. (laughs) And Sterling Hayden, if if you've never heard of him before, First of all, is six foot five and a former Marine. Yes. He was in The Godfather. He was in Johnny Guitar. Yep. And he played uh, Dr. Jack D. Ripper in Dr. Strangelove. Um, he's had a wildlife, he had a wildlife and career, but he was huge. So when we do meet Roger Wade, it's like this booming, almost like Ernest Hemingway type of like blustering alcoholic maniac. And he eventually does die by suicide by walking into the ocean while Eileen and Marlo are having a conversation in a window. And I think, again, this is where Robert Altman is so wild as a director because you're kind of seeing the reflection of this man walking into the water as they're talking about nonsense. Like, there's nothing that they're talking about that that can wait, that can't wait. Yeah, But they're just having a normal conversation because at the same time, you're wondering, like, is she tr- like trying to put the moves on Marlo? Like, you're kind of questioning her motives while her husband is walking into the ocean. And then they both catch wind of the fact that he's doing this and they run after him, but it's too late. They can't catch him. Yeah. She, this is, again, I think part of, like, what is is kind of, like, what Altman is borrowing from that kind of noir traditions because she... You know, Eileen Wade seems like a very femme fatale character to me. She kind of has that, like, Barbara Stanwyck from Double Indemnity type of vibe to her. Like, yeah. you know, she's kind of like, you know, she's got this husband, and I don't really know what her thoughts are behind him, whether or not she actually, like, wants him dead or wants him to just be out of the picture. And she wants this, like, third-party guy to come in and maybe help a little bit with that. Um yeah. 
And also to your point about Sterling Hayden, I mean, he was a huge noir actor. I mean, he was in The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. So like, you know, beyond a lot of other things. But, um, you know, so having Sterling Hayden in this movie too, I think is is a good kind of throwback to that kind of classic noir era. But you're absolutely right about him as an actor. Like he's one of my favorite actors. And like towards the end of his life, he just got weird. Like he was in <laughs> 9 to 5. Do you remember when, yes. when he showed up at the end of 9 to 5 and he's like sweating? You yes. know? And that's like, that was kind of like this to me, like his kind of 70s and 80s era. He was just like sweating and yelling and he had like weird facial hair and canes and weird clothes. He was just kind of this like maniac. (laughs) I love it. I aspire to be that in my later years. Just like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I want. All the pit hair is grown out. I'm I'm fucking rocking a cane. I'm shouting yeah. everywhere I go. I'm yelling <laughs> at a dog. I'm like in a dog's face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep offering this dog. This is the other thing that's so so interesting to me about this movie. There's so many repetitive moments where mm-hmm. he keeps saying, like, you know, do you want a dog? Um, Marlo constantly says, it's okay with me. Like, that's kind of his response as he's talking to himself and as he's talking to other people. And then there's also this one very clear repetitive moment that comes directly from Robert Altman, which is the fact that the theme song, The Long Goodbye, is the only song in the movie. You hear it yeah. everywhere. You hear it at funeral processions, it's playing on the radio. If somebody rings a doorbell, it's the long goodbye. You hear it in the supermarket. And I was reading through, again, like this Robert, this Roger Ebert review um, from 73, and he thinks it's just it, that he just did that because it kind of made Altman laugh because he had the orchestra, which was directed by John Williams. Yes, the same John Williams who did all the music for Star Wars, including the Imperial March. Mm-hmm. Um, he had John Williams you know, kind of write and and create this song. And I think it just made him laugh to hear it in so many different ways, like to hear a mariachi band playing it and then hearing it in a doorbell. Um, But there's all these repetitive moments in the movie that you kind of key into as, again, I think a way of building a character, like, because people do say the same things a lot. (laughs) You know, Yeah, the the other recurring um, thing that happens in the movie is that security guard at the Malibu colony who always does an impression of like a classic film actor. Yes. And he does it so good too. He's like, I good was like, at it. Even when he did Barbara Stanwyck, I was like, holy shit, this guy nailed it. He's good at it. And people humor him. Like they let him do it. They almost yeah. look forward to it. Where I think in another movie, it would have been a point of annoyance. People really are like, yeah, do you, go ahead, do your thing. <laughs> That's it's LA, very, very baby. <laughs> That's LA for you, man. So it was what again in, in Altman style, but also in true Raymond Chandler style. Eventually, all of these stories are connected. The Wades are tied into, you know, Marty, Augustine, you know, Terry may or may not be dead because Marlowe receives something in the mail from him. He doesn't know if he wrote it before he died, supposedly, or after. He's back and forth to Mexico. It it becomes like a very complicated maze of a story, but it does all shake out in the end, and you do get answers to everything. And the end is still kind of shocking to me, even though I know what to expect. It's still kind of... The way that it's developed is such a because the movie is such a slow roll, and again throughout the whole film you're like you don't see Marlowe as as a competent 
character, a competent figure in his own life. Uh, So the end is still kind of interesting and shocking to me. The one thing they don't explain, but that you can't help but notice, is that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays one of Marty Augustine's bodyguards, Mm -hmm. a very young Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he has the craziest mustache and he looks wild. (laughs) And he instantly gets naked. Like, the whole point of him being in the scene is that, like, everyone's taking their clothes off and... Yeah. For not sexy reasons, they're taking their clothes off. And he's just like, here is my body. I'm Arnold. Don't make me talk. Yeah. That is such a, that is such a weird scene of like all of this, like, you know, this like mob boss and his, and his thugs, like getting in their underwear. Like, it is so crazy. It is, it is black briefs. Like he's Eric Roberts from Star 80. I'm like, what in the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> It's so wild. It's so wild. I love that scene. I also just love that that Henry Gibson, the great actor Henry Gibson, is in this movie. And he's just Henry Gibson in every movie. Like, he's playing Dr. Berenger, this, you know, kind of a secondary character. But mm-hmm. every time you see him, you're like, oh, yeah, there's Henry Gibson being Henry Gibson. Like, yeah. it's just very sweet and funny. And, and I think it's well cast. It's really funny. Yeah. It's super interesting. Very Sundays with Granddad kind of movie, but one of Elliot Gould's finest roles and one of my favorite of his movies. Yeah. Have you have you ever seen Inherit Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Inherit Vice is sort of is a nod to the long goodbye. Or just this kind of like LA-based detective story where like the detective is sort of a bumbly, fumbly kind of California type, you know? Yep. I think kiss, <laughs> and, kiss, kiss, bang, bang is a nod to this. Like. Yeah. And it's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the story is based on sort of who's in the environment. Like who are these weird characters that just pop up in the story and they're right. all kind of quirky and, and have their own, like, weird-isms, you know? So I don't know. I I enjoy stories like this. Like, I enjoy that kind of feeling of, like, I don't know if it's, like, a stranger in a strange land type of feeling, but also, like, you know, a kind of peek into California in the 70s and sort of, like, what are these people doing and how do they know each other? And everybody lives in these, like, weird kind of apartments and with these big windows and everyone's wearing like flowing clothes and the women are naked. And, you know, it's like this whole, this whole thing. I love it. Completely. Oh, I love this movie so much. I'm so glad we got to watch it. And I cannot wait to talk about your movie. I have never wanted to be drunk with two movie characters so much in my life. Oh, I love, I love it. It's, it's a romance, if you will. So my movie for the theme, grandpa's muttering again, is uh, from 1974. It was written by Joseph Walsh. It was directed by Robert Altman, of course, and it's called California Split. You fellas here to uh, drink or play? Well, my partner here is the player, and uh, I guess I'm the drinker. Okay, so one sentence synopsis right off the bat. Two compulsive gamblers are relentless in their pursuit of a great big payday. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Absolutely. And this, when I started watching this, I, I was like, oh, it made me think, this has Millie, what some of Millie's two favorite things. Mm. And I didn't realize this, but you love gambling movies mm-hmm. and you love movies where people have their original teeth. <laughs> and this has both. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> There's a lot of OTs, original teeth in this film. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, and I love that you know that about me. <laughs> That's a very astute observation. It only took nearly 200 movies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to that point, isn't it interesting that California Split, 1974, came out the same year as The Gambler, which we've covered, the James Caan movie, right? But you know what? You're right about it, only in the sense that I think because, like you, I'm risk-averse. So is it fascinating to watch people fucking piss their life away at a casino. Yes. 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 Just make bad decision after bad decision. I know. (laughs) I wish I had, like, that's the thing, is that I wish I had the switch that said, let it ride. Like, like, just let life ride. Like, who cares if you have the money? (laughs) Just gamble it. Because I'd be, like, a completely different person, right? I've had that. I I was that. I was that in my 20s. I don't regret it. Wow. I don't regret it. That's how I ended up moving to all those different places. I was like, fuck it. If I'm going to be broke, I might as well be broke in California. Ugh. See, that is intriguing to me, which is also why I love you telling your stories about fighting bears in Alaska and dating murderers and shit, because I've, like, lived such a simple, boring (laughs) life in comparison. So, you know. You dug deep in my psyche by saying that. I'm just saying. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Well, and like, but here's the thing about California Split. It's like one of these things where it's like, the package is that it's like this fun kind of comedy between these like two like lovable loser types. But it is going to be a bit dark because it's a gambling movie, right? And because of sort of, I guess, what we just talked about with um, The Long Goodbye and Altman generally, it, this movie kind of captures the nuance of these people, even the people who are not like, principal characters it's and and everyone's kind of the same everyone's kind of down on their luck in a in a way it kind of reminds me slightly of fat city which we talked Mm. about on this podcast and a movie that i absolutely love despite it being such a bummer of a movie but that's what we're talking about in california split is this kind of world of uh like the kind of lovable losers, the, you know, the people who are kind of living on the fringes if you will so california split is a movie about two men, Bill, who is played by George Seagal, and Charlie, who is played by our King Elliot Gould. And at the very beginning of the movie, they see each other at this poker club or this like poker society or something that's happening. I have never been to something like this before. Have you? I don't know. No, I never have. It looks like a like a like a modern day bingo hall, but poker. Yes, and it is like primarily filled with, like, old, weird people, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's a couple of youngins in there, but it's mostly, like, loud grandmas. Absolutely. There's an air of real desperation that hangs, like, people really need to win. It's one of those kinds of poker places. And a lot of, like, people who have seen some things, if you know what I mean, like, they're just like, you can't pull a fast one on them, even if you wanted to, even if the woman is 85 years old. Like, she's... She's going to clock you, bitch. Like, she's Eagle-eyed. very wise. But they see each other at this place. And then, you know, afterwards, they're they're at the bar and they just become friends because they share this mutual love of gambling, right? But here's the thing. So Bill, the George Seagal character, a little bit of background about him in the film. He's a magazine writer by day, but he will literally use any excuse 
than he can to leave work and gamble. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's technically employed, but he really doesn't want to be. He wants to be gambling <laughs> all day, every day. Perfect description. <laughs> yeah. And, but, but this is going back to what you said earlier about his clothes in this film. I think it's really important to notice the way Bill is dressed because it kind of suggests that he is still like one foot in this professional world, right? Right. He is wearing like collared shirts and sweaters and pea coats and, you know, like cool sunglasses. I mean, I think that is an important distinction to make when we talk about Bill and Charlie as characters because they are in a romance. Don't get it twisted. They're they're in a romance, uh, at least in my mind. But they're just different people with different needs and different approaches, right? Completely. So Bill... Bill is kind of the more professional guy. He's separated from his wife. Again, he's always trying to leave work. Charlie, on the other hand, though, is this like real kind of dyed-in-the-wool type of guy. Like, he's a gambler. He's like a real gambler. He's the guy who is like wearing the wacky shirts, who knows all the lowlifes in town, and he's like shit-talking his way through every poker game in town, right? He Um, has a sheen of sweat covering his body at all times. Yes. He, to me, Charlie is a real Charles Bukowski type, if you know what I mean. Like, he's, he's, like, on an endless pursuit of, like, good times, but he he also seems that he's probably gotten his ass handed to him a few times in his life. Like, in the pursuit of the good times, he's gotten his ass kicked, right? right? Like, and he's just this kind of, like, big character, uh, in this kind of world that that he's in. And so that's kind of the thing about Bill and Charlie. Like, of course, when you start any new relationship, right, you're just obsessed with each other. And Bill is enchanted by a guy like Charlie. Because Bill thinks Charlie is this big winner. And he's just kind of an exciting guy, right? He <laughs> Charlie is like, he's always walking around with like some kind of broken nose or like a bandage on his face. And he teaches Bill like very early on in the movie <laughs> they get their asses kicked, of course. Uh, and then he teaches Bill how to use, like, I guess, hot shaving cream to put on your torso after you've been, like, kicked in the ribs by someone. And that's exciting to Bill. Like, even though Bill's like, I just got my ass kicked with this guy, he's like, oh, this guy, like, kind of knows a few things about life. And they're kind of in the movie, as the movie progresses, they're kind of going around town and they're gambling everywhere. They're, like, on horses, on boxing, casinos, Poker games. Even when they're literally sitting at a bar, yep. they're, they're betting each other, like, if they can name all the seven dwarfs. So fucking you know. funny to watch them drink together. They're so, so funny. Yes. And Charlie is friends with these two sex workers who are played by Gwen Wells and Anne Prentice, right? And these two women live in an apartment and this is kind of, their apartment is kind of where Charlie seems to retreat constantly. Like, who knows if he's seeing either one of them seriously. He kind of just comes in and out, but they always kind of nourish him with beer and Fruit Loops and kind of, you know, after a hard night of gambling and getting your stomach kicked in, they kind of heal him in this weird way. Well, and, Barbara at one point says, um, she's like, well, she was talking to, Bill, and she's like, well, he just kept, you know, spending so much money on us here, we thought he might as well stay. <laughs> like, so you get the impression that, like, he he, he was there first as a patron. Yes. Uh, but they kind of grew to love him. Yes, and now they're just kind of this 
little family unit. And and this is the thing is that Bill, now that him and Charlie are really good friends, you know, they kind of become this like little foursome, this kind of weird family, right? But I will say that I think that there's a, a difference between Bill and Charlie and that Charlie, this is Charlie's life. Bill, this feels like an escape or something. This kind of world of weirdos and uh, edges of society type of things. Like, Charlie is way more aloof and kind of comes in and out of it. At one point, like, Charlie goes missing for a few days and Bill's trying to look for him. And then it turns out he's just gambling in Mexico. He just left town. And then when he gets back, though, Bill is upset. He's, like, upset that he didn't ask him to go with him. And to me, that's like, you know, I keep calling it a romance, but it's also like, yeah, in this moment, you know, Bill is like, where have you been? Like, why did you take me? And... You're my new friend. You're my everything. It's definitely the reaction of somebody who's like, who's jealous and concerned and all the things that like a partner would be if you went missing for three days. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, but that also that he doesn't understand that, you know, this is Charlie's life. Like, he, this is just the way he he moves through the world. And Bill feels like, you know, I don't know, like in a weird way, doesn't really know that about him yet and was kind of surprised that maybe this guy wasn't going to you know, invite him to his Mexico gambling trip. Yeah, um, well, there's that, there's such a dichotomy between the two of them that starts to become apparent to the viewer, even if it doesn't immediately become apparent to Bill. And none more than that scene where they decide to get together to go gamble in Reno. Yes. And the way that they prepare is so different. Yeah. It's like, Charlie's like, I'm going to go to the basketball courts and hustle people. Yeah. And Bill is like, I'm going to go to the pawn shop and sell some of my very expensive things. Yeah. And even, my car. <laughs> yes. And even when they actually get there, Charlie's like, let's have a drink. Bill's like, nope. Like, it's coffee for me. Like, I got to keep my brain in the game type of thing. And that's, I think, when it comes down to it, that is the, the real difference between Bill and Charlie, is that Bill seems more generally kind of more troubled than Charlie is. He, I think that Bill's reason to to gamble is more about kind of desperation or like maybe a search for something. And, you know, Charlie's just like having a good time. Um, yeah, Bill's an addict. Bill's yeah. an addict. And Charlie yes. doesn't feel like an addict to me. Right. And what's interesting to me is that I do feel that Bill, I think at times in the film, questions whether or not he can actually like fully commit to the lifestyle in the, in the way right. that Charlie has. Like, there's a scene where Bill is at the apartment with Susan, who's one of the sex workers, and they kind of seem to really like each other, and there's this kind of conversation where she's like, do you like me for real, or is this like a John type of thing? And, you know, Bill's like, no, I really like you. And, uh, you know, at the last minute, though, he kind of pulls away and then just leaves, almost kind of like in a weird, like, what am I doing am I really about to, like, engage in a relationship with this sex worker and maybe this isn't who I am and blah, 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 blah. So that's, you know, that scene I think is really telling to the Bill character, meaning that he's kind of, again, like, kind of one foot out in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Whereas Charlie is constantly looking for ways to insert himself in situations that could be dangerous or that could be detrimental to his health. <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of seeks those out more often than not. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because there's like this, um, this whole sequence where Bill obviously is in debt and he can't pay off his bookie. Who's this guy named Sparky. Uh, and Sparky looks like he's in 
fucking Seals and Croft or some some <laughs> 70s yacht rock band, right? And like go they meet at this restaurant and the guy orders chili, which I think is so weird. Uh <laughs> just just chili. Uh he's like, You want a chili? Like, dude, what? Yeah. Oh good. But uh <laughs> it, but it but in that moment, it's tense because Bill is like, you know, he if it was Charlie. Charlie would shit talk his way through the scenario, but Bill can't. He's he feels something, right? Right. And it's kind of a tense, tense scenario uh, because you know that it's the desperation for him, right? Um, and then of course you've got this Reno thing towards the end of the film, which is literally my favorite <laughs> sequence in the movie because for so many reasons. They decide they want to get in on this private poker game. And you realize that there's probably a lot riding on this game because of, again, the sequences that you saw prior with Sparky and just sort of like Bill's need to like win big type of thing. And it is actually pretty tense, even though they're in this kind of ridiculous environment. Like Bill, at one point, Bill tells Charlie, like he's up 11K and he's, and he's got that heat. I'm like, oh God, I, I hope he does actually have that heat and isn't just the attic talking, you know what I mean? I hope he walks away. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, and Charlie, and like, and Bill's doing all the gambling, right? He's the clear-headed, sober one. You know, Charlie's like restless in the casino. He's got nothing to do, and he's and Bill's in a trance. I mean, it's just you're very much like, what is going to happen? It's it's kind of tense for you know the movie prior, right? But my favorite part of this Reno scene is just truly the ambiance of everything around them. Like, first of all, this entire movie, I have to say, is this very, like, 1970s maximalist medieval kind of look. Do you, like, do you remember, remember. like, if you see, like, (laughs) 70s interior decorating, and it's like every place had decor, like it was like the fucking Knights of the Round Table. Oh my, when I think of 70s decor in public, I think of those red candles that were always on tables at restaurants that had some kind of strange design, but they were shaped like eggs that were cut at the top. Yes. Every restaurant had those. I think of those, speaking of medieval, those gigantic hanging lamps that were everywhere that had chains yes. that hooked the electric to the ceiling and then the hook to the hook. And like no one was putting a plug nearby. There was always a chain dangling on these huge iron wrought fucking lamps. Yes. And it was just like, welcome to Perkins. <laughs> or <laughs> welcome to a castle. You can't tell. Welcome yes. to the Lion in Winter or Perkins or IHOP. Yes, it's like um, what's that hotel in Vegas that was that like Excalibur or something like that? It's like this very um I have to say, not to make this a podcast about design trends, but <laughs> When I watch this movie again, and I think because we have been in a period of very, like, low-key, blonde wood, Brooklyn bullshit for the past couple years, that I'm like, listen, I think we need to bring this shit back. Let's bring back these giant, huge chandeliers that look like actual candles are being lit on them. Let's bring back these 
tufted brown leather club chairs and red light everything. Red lights and red carpet everything. Red lights, mustard colored lights. It was just red and mustard. Yes. Uh, we need to bring back the big fork and spoon for the wall. Oh my God. We, a yeah. giant wicker fan. A giant wicker fan shaped like a spade. Yes, ab- absolutely. This So one of my favorite things about this Reno poker place or this casino that they go to is that when they arrive at the backroom poker game, there's this hallway that leads to the backroom that's lined with taxidermy behind velvet ropes. <laughs> it's like... And you know they did that because somebody tried something at some point. <laughs> yes. Like, put these dead animals behind velvet ropes. And then... When they show up there, they don't, you know, they they walk into the room and everybody is wearing like a giant cowboy hat. And the bartender's like, "What can I do you for?" When you, when you hear that phrase, you know you're in a place that is heaven, essentially. And then there is a one of the best things about this movie is that there's this incredible lounge singer, and her name was Phyllis Shotwell, and she's just like at the piano, like making shit up as she goes. She's like doing some Dean Martin stuff and you can just saddle right up to her and blow cigarette smoke in her face and <laughs> put a dollar in her in her glass. I mean, it's so great. It's so great. The giant Chablis glass on the top of the piano. <laughs> and like... Yeah, this is a 70s-ass movie for sure. Oh my God. I mean, it, it was intoxicating this time. Like, I've seen this movie... A few times, and I was like, I don't know what it is. I feel like I want to be in this world of, like, tacky medieval 1970s casino bullshit. And I'm like, how do I do this in my own home? Like, take all these shelves out of here. Let's put put some, like, faux castle architecture in here. A drawbridge, perhaps, that leads to the kitchen. I don't know. Something. You're going to have to start with a disgusting carpet, and you know it. <laughs> the but, carpet will set the mood, for oh, sure. You got to do a shag, a red shag. Fuck. But this, you know, this movie, though, uh, you know, ultimately, the writer, Joseph Walsh, wrote this script about his own gambling addiction, you know, so this is very true to life for him. F- from what I've read, there's actually this really cool, like, featurette. They used to call them featurettes, but these, like, kind of... um teaser kind of behind-the-scenes films that they used to make for Hollywood movies. But there's one on YouTube about California Split, and um, Elliot Gould, I think, talks about how Robert Altman loved to gamble. So I think everybody involved was into gambling generally. So this movie feels very authentic. Like, you don't have to know anything about gambling at all, but you're going to listen to a bunch of people mumble terminology and kind of shorthand for gambling and you're just it's just going to intoxicate you i promise there's that that scene with um charlie on he's taking the bus to the horse races yeah and he meets that woman and they're talking about this horse and he's kind of telling her all this bullshit like he's just making up stuff and she's like, you can read all that from the paper? And he's like, yeah, if you know what, how to read it, you could find out all kinds of stuff. But then you realize, like, nah, he's just kind of leading her on. And he ends up betting on that horse and telling her not to. And the horse wins. And she is attacking them on the escalator like you wouldn't <laughs> believe. Like, throwing 
oranges, throwing her purse, throwing her hat. It is just one of the weirdest, funniest little scenes. That is yeah. so 70s and so like, again, this world of gambling is so specific and you have to know so many things. You have to be smart about it in yeah. order to potentially win anything, but you're also probably never going to win no matter how much you know. It's just such an interesting look yeah. at that world. Yeah. The horse is named Egyptian Femme and they say it probably about 35 times in this one scene. Also, my favorite line of that escalator scene is George Seagal says, you don't throw oranges on an escalator. Yes! And I'm like, that's that's a mantra for life. You don't but throw oranges on an escalator. You do not throw oranges. I mean, throwing an orange, that's a heavy fruit. That could hurt somebody, lady. Also, I would be remiss if I did not mention this. Jeff fucking Goldblum makes a cameo in this film, which leads me to believe that he has been planted by Hollywood as an Easter egg in every film that we talk about on this podcast. And I don't know why. They started it. His whole career started in the 70s so that we could reach this moment and be like, yep, there he is again. Yes. he. I swear if you go back in our episodes, there's probably like at least six or seven times where we're like, oh yeah, and Jeff Goldblum has a cameo in this. He's like the guy that owns the five and dime shop or he is the, totally. the guy that is in the background in an office. I'm just like, how is that possible? How? I didn't even know his career was that intense until the eighties until the fly. I know. We've talked about him so often. We're going to have to tally him. Like we've talked about him so often. He might be the, the one we've talked about the most, who knows, but um, I refuse. I refuse to let him unseat Modine in that oh, way. Listen, I'm sick of it. I don't want him showing up in any other movie we talk about. But listen, I, I love this film so much. Like I said, I think it is a romance between two guys who have this common goal, which is to win big. They come at it from different ways. But also, I feel like this film kind of sets the table for so many other films about gambling. I mean, you wouldn't have uncut gems if it wasn't for this film, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, the pace of it, for sure. Yeah, and I just, I think it's just, again, like a immersive world uh, that is partially because of the Robert Altman thing of all these characters kind of having kind of that audio equity of hearing bits of conversations. Elliot Gould is the muttering king once again. And it's just, a, it's, like a, it's like a fun romp. I mean, it's dark at parts, but it's actually very fun to watch. I could not agree more. It is, it's absolutely hilarious, and it does get dark, but they always balance that levity very, very well. And I'm thinking, too, of that scene where Barbara and Susan are getting ready for a date at home, and they're yeah. kind of all dressed up, and they're like, ooh, I wonder where we're going, and we're, like, where, it's, where are we going to go? And it's right after Bill and Charlie win big, and they want to kind of go and razzle-dazzle, like, take the girls out. But they're like, no, we have a date. So they kind of peek in the window at this date. And it ends up being this person named Helen Brown, who's a, um, a man dressed in women's clothing. Mm -hmm. And we don't get the full story. But I always get so nervous when I watch old movies, like, oh, God, here it comes. Like the yeah. disenfranchisement and the 
the you know the fucking violence but it's so but they're not like that like i think it says a lot about these characters they kind of bust in and pretend to be cops so they can like just go on a date with their friends like they just want to take these girls out but i also think it's nice that the women you know these sex workers are like okay helen like you look great like she's you know you look wonderful we like your dress like they're treating her with such kindness right um and then these guys who could walk in and be just absolute shitheads or just kind of like you know, pretending to be cops. They're like, we're not going to arrest you. You get out of here. We'll just arrest these two. And then they go out for a night on the town with their friends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I just think that it's it's an interesting look at the chaos of their lives and how much they'll commit to gambling and how little they'll commit to everything else. And you don't really get a full backstory about Bill's marriage, but like his whole life, we're watching it fall apart. Like the rest yeah. of his life fall apart. So I think that, I don't know, I, I like the way that this movie kind of messes with, like, the commitment aspect of it and what they take seriously, what they don't take seriously, how they fall into this this relationship with each other, which I also think is very much a romance <laughs> they fall into with each other. And it's the same way that romance works. You're kind of watching people be enchanted by each other and just going along for the ride, but the ride just happens to be gambling. Yeah. It's like you know that Bill is... Bill is not like he he he's not picking the right partner. No. <laughs> like and we're gonna keep using this relationship metaphor, but like he's doing the thing that we're not supposed to do when we're out there looking for love, which is to find somebody who is like this idealized person that is somebody that you can get wrapped up in in terms of, like, a fantasy, right? Because that's who right. Charlie is to him. He's this, like, fun winner. Uh, and Bill is, like, a little bit less that. And he thinks that Charlie is his everything, and he's, like, just really on the ride. But that's what makes the ending of the film, which I would never give away, so interesting is because I think it clicks for him, finally. He's in that mode where he's like, okay, like, who am I? Who is this guy that I'm obsessed with? And uh, want to be like so much. And what is this thing that we do? What is this passion that we share? And is it something that's important to me at the end of the day? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad you picked this movie. Again, could not think of two film characters I'd want to get drunk with more. Yeah. And to be honest, both of these, we talk about rich texts on this podcast a lot. It is like my favorite thing to do is to to just like, sink my teeth into like two films that are like there's a lot going on in them and there's yeah. a lot to kind of you know look at and study and wonder about you know and i don't know i think that's why robert altman has always been one of my favorite filmmakers because there's just so many layers to the things that he does absolutely and um and also, like, with Elliot Gould. I mean, Elliot Gould and Robert Altman, that pairing is just so great. And, you know, there's a lot... Like, if you look up Elliot Gould on the internet, talking about working with Robert Altman was just, like, a joy. And I don't know. Just love love this pairing this week, obviously. Like, couple of classics. Couple of 70s original teeth classics. Very different from our films next week. Mm. <laughs> but before we get to that, that's right. Listen, folks, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please send us questions for bonus episodes. We also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten screeds. 
or you can leave us a voicemail to play on the show. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to you. I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. Make it 60 seconds or less. And please record it in a quiet space and you're all set. That's right. Please also find us on our social media accounts. We are at I saw a pod on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Twitter. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention we have merch. So go to exactlyrightstore.com and you can find our Give Me the B of the D t-shirt and now crew neck sweatshirt. It's in black. It will hide all the spaghetti sauce stains that you get. It's great. (laughs) And our bonus episodes come out on the main feed now every third Thursday of the month. Absolutely. Listen, Danielle, please tell them what the movies are for next week. We are jumping out of the 70s. Like Florence Griffith Joyner. <laughs> or Jackie Joyner Kersey. <laughs> Our movies for next week. Last episode of the year. Yep. Die Hard from 1988 and Eyes Wide Shut from 1999. Holy shit. Guess the theme. What a double feature. And if you've listened to this episode from the beginning or for the last couple of years, the theme will be evident to you. It's the one time of year that you can probably get the theme absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah, you got a shot this time. Well, listen, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Thank you for being a good friend to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a good friend to me. I love this. And I love you. I'll see y'all later. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.